Hello, everyone online in the podcast. Welcome to the Be the Church podcast, where we are engaging in conversations that will encourage you to live out your faith in everyday context so that you can be the church. I'm your producer, Isaiah, and we have Kevin and Theo as usual. But today we're doing something a bit different with a Q&A panel on the topic of dating, marriage, and sex. So uh, with us as well, Theo, would you mind introducing uh, who else is on the stage? Absolutely. So I have a couple uh, special guests and Daniel and Leah. Daniel's one of our pastors here at the church. Uh, live audience, can you welcome them to the panel? Very exciting. So we have a lot to cover today. Um, oh, sorry. Sorry. I, and not to be left out or forgotten is the lovely Jackie Anderson. There we go. We got everyone. I'm distracted. Anyways, so there's a lot of questions to go over today, so we're just going to get right into it. Um, we did our best to organize these topically so that it makes logical sense, but we're actually going to start uh, by going over the category of sex and lust. So uh, to start off strong with heavy questions, um, can men control themselves with lust, or is it truly ingrained in our DNA to respond sexually to others they see? And go ahead and ask the other one. What? Oh, yeah. And then, do all men lust, or sorry, yes, uh, do all men lust, not just attraction, but lust, and will they always lust despite marriage and intimacy? All right, I'm going to tackle this one first. And... Um, uh, because we chose this question first because this is going to set the foundation for everything else that we talk about. So I want to have clear definitions for what we are going to be speaking out, speaking about um, throughout this time. So let me give you the definition for lust that we're going to be working from. Uh, there's kind of two parts to it, according to the dictionary. Um, intense or unrestrained sexual craving or um, an overwhelming desire or craving. Okay. Now, a lot of people kind of ask about lust and we talk about lust. What, what does it mean? How, how does it work in our lives? And so the, the, the reason that lust is a sin is because lust has its focus in pleasing oneself. And it often leads to unwholesome actions to fulfill one's desires with no regards to the consequences. And so lust is about possession and, and greed. And, and why this is sinful for us as a Christian is because Christianity is about selflessness, where lust is selfish in and of itself. And there's a lot of scriptures that, that, that talk about this. And, and so, so the issue, though, is not our desire. The issue is itself lust. Now, I want to answer it this way and just kind of give you the pattern of how this works. Now, I'm going to speak primarily from the male perspective, especially as I understand it, being 44 years old and having walked this path for, you know, for the last 30 or so year, years of my life, that when, when we talk about lust and attraction and desire, here, here's the pattern that we see, okay? So I'm a guy 
and I see an attractive woman. And so the first part of this is that I notice that, oh, that is an attractive woman. Is there anything wrong with me noticing that there's an attractive woman? Right. No, there's nothing wrong with noticing that. Is there anything wrong with me acknowledging that another woman besides my wife is attractive? No, there's nothing wrong with me acknowledging that, hey, that is a pretty girl, that is a pretty woman. But what comes after we acknowledge and after we notice? That is when desire can set in. And that desire ends up becoming temptation and lust. And this is what the Bible warns us about specifically in James chapter 1. Because we're told, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Okay? So the pattern that we see, and so guys, this is one thing for you. If you acknowledge someone's pretty and notice someone's pretty, not a big deal. The problem is once you go from one look to the second look, right? Because in the second look, you then can get hooked into that and then desire overwhelms you, overtakes you, you give in and you fall to temptation. And as you do this over and over and over, it brings about death in your life. And so the, the question is, can men control themselves with lust or is it truly ingrained in our DNA to respond sexually to others they see? So let me, again, I, I don't like the, the DNA question if we're talking about from a just a scientific per perspective, right? Because God has given us sex, right? So God has given us desire for the opposite sex. So that is not necessarily wrong within the covenant confines of marriage. But the, the, the question is, can men control themselves? Yes, you can control yourself, all right? And, and that, that's going to be, the, I think, one of the big issues we're going to talk about in this, in this whole thing, because I think the question is, is often framed wrong. We talk about it as lust, but I think we need to talk about this more in the bigger framework of self-control, and we're, we'll get into that a little bit later as we go along. And so the question is, do all men lust? And so what I would say is, all men are tempted to lust, and there are times we do lust when we shouldn't, even though we're trying to fight this battle. Um, and will they always lust despite marriage and intimacy? Now, are you asking, does, in this question I think they're asking is, will they lust after other women who are not their spouse despite marriage and intimacy? I mean, the temptation is always going to be there, and the degree to which you fall will always be some, because no one is perfect in this. But this does not have to be the pattern for marriage, nor should it be the pattern for marriage. Now, we're going to dive deep into deeper levels in this as the questions get deeper and deeper and deeper. But I, I just wanted to establish a foundation for lust and desire and acknowledging as we get going. Anybody else want to add anything to that? I know I'm not a man, so it's difficult to answer this question, but one thing that I, I hear in the tone of this, the second question of will they always lust despite marriage and intimacy, I hear kind of a will marriage fix my battle with lust? 
And I would say wholeheartedly no, um, right? Like that's a, a, <laughs> a battle uh, that needs to be fought outside of marriage. Um, the marriage covenant will not like cure lust, right? And so um, being diligent and putting that to death over and over and over again um, before marriage and in marriage, uh, I think will be really important. That's really helpful, Jackie. So let's transition to the next topic area, which is about dating. Uh, so let's begin with the first question. So this first question I think is a really relevant question for a lot of people, um, and it's related to being ready. So the question is, is there a time when you know that you're ready to pursue a relationship? When do you know that you're ready for a relationship? Apparently I'm supposed to answer this one. Um, <laughs> okay, so I think I'm gonna switch it a little bit in saying that uh, there's certainly times when you're not ready, um, right? That would be like, you know, if you're 15, you're probably not ready um, to pursue marriage, uh, may, maybe in some strange instances, but most of the time probably not, right? You probably don't have a job that could support the family or things like that. Um, maturity, I think, is is a piece of it. But so to answer the question, is there a time when you are ready? Overall, no, probably not, um, because it's a, a continual growth process. Um, so I think this is a difficult question to answer because it, I like black and white answers and there's not one. Um, like it says, is there a way to know when you're ready to pursue a relationship? I think if I kind of take a step back, um, I would argue that it would be unwise to be in a relationship if marriage is entirely off the table. Does that make sense? Um, because what's the point? Um, I think it introduces some potential for, for dangers um, if marriage is like not, uh, not in sight. Um, Um, just something maybe, one, I'm just going to start out by saying this because we're probably going to reference Tim Keller's Meaning of Marriage about 500 times uh, during this panel, at least my wife and I. Um, so buy that book. It'll answer a lot of your questions. I'm not joking. It really will. It, even if you're like eight years old and like thinking about marriage 20 years from now, go ahead and buy it and start reading it. It'd be important for you to learn. Um, but in, in regards to this question in particular, Anytime we think about like something in the sphere of what's going on around us in culture, um, I've heard it explained that we can accept something in culture as Christians, we can reject something in culture as Christians, or we can try to redeem it as Christians. And I think when you're, specifically when you're approaching something like dating, you need to really ask yourself, is that something I can accept? Is that something I need to reject? Or is that something that can be redeemed as is? Um, Dating, in a lot of ways, guys, is not designed in, in its framework as it is to be something to build relational strength and a long-term 50-plus year commitment in marriage. Um, dating is kind of like going to the mall and trying on whatever clothes you want to try on until you find one that fits at that current period in time, which is why a lot of people, after dating for a little while, are married for a few years and the clothes don't fit anymore and they move on. 
And so if you go into dating with the same mindset that you would go into trying on clothes, I would say you're probably not ready. Because um, covenant, covenantal marriage is not designed for you and it's not designed to make you happy. One of the things that Tim Keller says in The Meaning of Marriage is like the major shift that's happened in the view of marriage over the course of the last several hundred years is that it's moved from a community focused and for the good of everyone, including those that are involved, to it's good for me. Meaning that when you you know, look for a spouse, you look for compatibility and who completes me. That's why you'll hear terms like, he's my soulmate, she's my soulmate, right? He's my Prince Charming, right? The, like the reality is, is like that person doesn't really exist. And if they do exist, they exist for a finite period of time and then don't exist that, it, that way anymore. And one of the easy ways to think through this is if you are a college student here listening to this, which most of you are, you're likely in your early 20s. How many of you are different today than before you entered college or university life and think differently and have different interests by a show of hands? I should hope. Pretty much all of you. Okay. okay, you are different at 22 than you are at 16. You are different at 16 than you were at 10. You will be different at 28 than you are at 22. You will be different at 34 than you will be at 28. You will be different at 40 than you were at 34. Right? Like the, the reality is, is you are going to go through changes. Your interests are going to change. Your desires are going to change. Your body is going to change. And so if you pick a spouse based upon what you find fun or life-giving during a season, when that season changes, it's hard to adjust with it. And so I think like the, the, the bigger reality to, to this question is just like, how do I view dating and how do I view marriage? Do I view marriage as a covenant built by God to display his glory? Kind of what we even talked about this morning, that all things are for the glory of God, including your marriage that ultimately it reveals the glory of God to others? Or am I in this because I want to have a spouse and have uh, kids one day? Desiring to have a fulfilling relationship and have kids is a recipe for a really crappy marriage. It doesn't mean that those things aren't good gifts given by God, but they're not God's original design and intention for marriage in the first place. And so I think as you, as you think through that, you should be able to answer biblically what is the point of being in a relationship? Because I don't think you need to reject dating. I just think you need to reject the cultural notion of what it looks like. There was a big movement in the church about, I don't know, 20 years ago about courtship and all those things. I don't think we necessarily need to say that that's the only way Christians can do it, but we do need to, to have a, a wise discussion about dating and how we redeem that in God's eyes. One quick thing is that uh, if you want to help yourself out, you need to ask people who have been married for 10 plus years if they think you're ready to get married, not your friends. All right. Your people who aren't your friends who aren't married, they don't know if you're ready to get married. But um, people like us, we will gladly tell you if we think you're ready to get married <laughs> and uh, we'll help gui guide you along the way. So that that is, you know, the Bible says there is there is wisdom in seeking out counselors, especially those who have been there before. So ask people who have been married at least a decade, not your friends who are in the honeymoon phase of love, okay? That's really helpful. So kind of staying along this topic of dating, we want to talk about standards. So should you have standards or criteria 
whenever you're trying to pursue a dating relationship with someone, can you have standards that are too low? Is there a way to have standards that are too high? How do we answer this question about standards? All right, now, um, there's a lot that I could say that would be funny, but um, <laughs> when it comes to standards, um, no, we, I think all of us would agree that it's very important to have standards, absolutely. Um, can they be too high? I mean, yes, they can be unrealistic if you're expecting perfection or if you're expecting the person to complete you. Um, all I was thinking was, was that Jerry Maguire, I think? I don't know. Okay, that's too old for most of you. But um, anyway, the whole reference of expecting this other person to complete you, um, that's uh, an unfair expectation and unrealistic when it comes to having those standards. But absolutely, should you have standards for what kind of... Um, life they are living, the fruit that you're seeing in their own relationship with Christ. Um, as a woman, I'll speak to the women specifically here, but you want to absolutely have, a, have it as a requirement that this person that you would even consider the notion of marrying, that they would love Jesus more than you. I mean, without a doubt, if that's not on their, if that's not who they are, then don't even consider them, um, because there will be times that life is going to just be hard, and and you don't want them trying to fulfill your needs or you fulfilling their needs to be higher than their relationship with Christ, um, because they're going to lead you well if you're looking to as a woman for the spouse to lead you well. Um, if they're looking to Jesus first and not just to fulfilling this um, lateral relationship. And so I do think it's wise to put down things that are, I would say, like I had a list. I know not everybody does. And, and my list was not like, you know, this tall, this color hair, whatever, because, I mean, honestly, Daniel's not what I would have ever imagined um, <laughs> that I would have fallen in love and married. Like, I never had thought I would marry a redhead or a guy from Alabama. I, I mean, I just didn't, you know, so, but. Um, There's hope for many of you. <laughs> <laughs> that is very true. Um, but what was on there were things like, that he was honest, that he had integrity, that he loved Jesus, that he would treat me um, with respect and kindness, and um, that he did not have um, a, a problem with anger. Like that was important to me because of my past with my own dad and that relationship. So there can be things that are very um, personal to you on there because of concern for things that could trigger, you know, whether it's depression or other things that you've been through. So I would just say it is important to prayerfully um, consider those things, what standards you would have, because it's a lot easier in the midst or in, in a, whether it's just attraction, you know, that you find somebody, then you just get attracted to them. And then all of a sudden, if you don't have these standards that you've already kind of written down that you are expecting, that you lower them immediately because 
you just have these, you know, your the butterflies in your stomach and like all the feelings. And so that's not a good judge of character. So you need to have something already established um, by which you're going to judge their character and who they are and um, how they're walking in their relationship with Christ. Let, let me ask this uh, specifically. I mean, how many of you actually have a set, uh, a defined set of standards for what you have as expectations for your future spouse? That is way more hands than I expected. All right. Yes. I think all of you have been in my gospel community group, but no, that's fine. No. Um, so let me, let me give you a, let, let me give this specifically for the ladies. Um, but this is, this is one of those things as a dad of, of two daughters. It's really super important to me. Ladies, you need to write this down. This is gospel truth right here. If you don't write it down, it is your own fault, and I will not feel sorry for you in the future. <laughs> Hands down. Okay. No, not in marriage, usually. Um, pastor, protector, provider. Hands down. Ladies, this, this is your standard. These are God's biblical standards for you. Now, we can break pastor down into prophet and priest. So if you want to use prophet, priest, protector, provider, these are your standards. If this man, if you do not consider him worthy to be the pastor of your home, to speak God's truth into your home, to care for you as a priest within your home and your children, to... Um, protect you and your children relationally, emotionally, and spiritually, and to provide for you financially, physically, emotionally. Like, it's not even a question. And until you see every single... It doesn't mean he's perfect, but if you, if you don't see every single one of those things in his life, like, you, you should not even be asking that, right? And you need to set these standards Hi. I mean, you, you, you cannot set that bar hard enough or, or, or high enough, in, in my opinion, because one of the, it, is a, it is a massive mistake that women compromise and settle, okay? As one who pastored a church for 12 years in the Northwest, almost every single marital issue I dealt with was a woman crying in my office because she settled for a man who did not meet those requirements. And she thought he would change along the way. No. Because, I mean, if he's acting that way while pursuing you, I mean, uh, once he's got you and you're stuck, I mean, it, so yes, set that as your standard. Men, I'm not, I can't give you as clearly defined thing. I'll tell you, go look at Proverbs 31 and how that woman works, that she's not a busybody, that she's not a gossip, that she's honorable. I'll be honest, when, you know, Lee and I, we met in Africa and we were separated. Uh, and so we did a lot of email conversation. One of the things, that, how I knew I wanted to marry her was one day uh, she sent me this email that I got in the internet cafe back in the mall. And uh, yeah, uh -huh, that's how old I am. And uh, it, was this, it was this huge list that it's like, if we're going to go down this road, you need to know, here's every single thing that I expect. And it was this bullet list straight out of the Bible. And I was like, uh, I'm in. Like, yep. Yeah. Because again, I will tell you, 
marry the godliest person you can find. You can marry for a lot of reasons. You marry a godly person, almost everything else will take care of itself. So do, do not be afraid to set those standards high because I will tell you the worst thing you can do is marry someone who does not meet those standards of pastor, protector, and provider. The most joyful marriage you will have if you get into that marriage, man, if you lead from that standpoint, and ladies, if you have established he has those characteristics before you get into it. I just think I want to make sure you guys heard something Leah said that was really good, that they love Jesus. And I would say this, they love Jesus more than they love you. People that love you more than they love Jesus will make terrible spouses. Hear, hear me on that. It, it seems counterintuitive, but it, it really does matter. And so uh, one of the things, again, I'm you can just go ahead and give any credit in the uh, footnotes to Tim Keller uh, when we're done. But one of the things that Tim Keller says that when you're in the d dating process or when you're pursuing somebody, one of the things you should be looking for is some of these set, sets of standards. But another thing you should be thinking about is, do I see what God is doing in the life of this man or this woman? Do I see where they're going? And can I see myself wanting to be there with them as God moves in their life and transforms them into the image of Christ? Do I want to be along on that journey with them? Right? Like for me, Right. I'll never forget um, when I met Jackie, I was on a spring break trip with Campus Crusade for Christ at the time. Right, That's right. You guys changed the name now. You got rid of all this stuff. Right, But that was our background. And I was supposed to be doing uh, relief for Hurricane Katrina. So that's how old I am back when dinosaurs roamed the earth. And I decided to go on this spring break trip instead because they were doing beach evangelism in Panama City Beach, which I've learned is not really in Florida, but is actually part of Alabama. So, um, and while, while we were there, I'm just going to be honest with you ladies here for a second. Um, at our university, it was like 60, 40 female to male. So like pretty much if you had a pulse, you could get a date as a guy. The amount of women on that trip that were looking for a husband instead of being there to serve the Lord and be on a mission trip was really, really telling and really, really unattractive. Now, this isn't me saying, like, you guys should go look for Kevin. He's going to notice that kind of stuff. What I am saying is the reality of the, to me was, like, that immediately threw out, like, 40 of the women that were there, right, that they were more interested in finding a date and a spouse than they were at making much of Jesus. Consequently, or, or subsequently, right? Am I using grammar? Fix me, you know. <laughs> you guys should hear Jackie's like grammar lessons for me every Sunday after a sermon. It's like, do you know what you said? Doesn't make any sense. I'm like, no. Jackie was dating a friend of mine at the time. I remember sitting in my a hotel room with the guys. We had literally locked ourselves in our hotel room to avoid the girls. And I said, why would these girls think that anybody wanted to date them? I just want somebody that's like Jackie and clearly loves the Lord more than she loves their men. And I prophetically spoke it into existence that she would fall in love with me <laughs> one day. But, but in all seriousness, though, I mean, what Leah said there is absolutely 100% right. You can overlook a lot of other things if that person loves Jesus more than they love you, 
because Jesus is a lot better at fixing other people's problems than you are. And so that's what you should be looking for. So I know we've already kind of uh, hit on it a little bit with some of the stuff you were saying, Daniel, but uh, if you guys wanted to add anything to this, uh, what uh, major red flag should we be aware of that indicate that we should absolutely not pursue a relationship? Thank you, Daniel. Of course. Oh, this is going to be so unpopular, and you're going to be so mad at me. Um, again, I, I, just, um, I know we have to be equally critical of men and, and women in this, but usually, usually it is men who do so much of the destruction in these, in these, in these things. Um, I would just tell you, if, if he cannot exhibit uh, self-control, especially in any realm when it comes to uh, sex, shouldn't be considered. This is one of those things. Now, I want to give you a little bit of my background, and I want to tell you where I'm at because I'm now raising a teenage son, so I'm really in the, in the throw of this, and I've really thought about this in different new ways that I've never thought of it before. You know, at 14 years old, my dad basically gave me permission with lust and pornography, um, and I didn't miss a day for 10 years straight. Um, that set me down, not um, yeah, um, that set me down a path and put a lot of hardwiring into my brain and uh, just had a lot of consequences for me individually and just having to work through that. And then Jesus enters into my life and I've had this, you know, 10 year pattern of, of everyday pornography and everything that goes along with it, right? Um, and, but yet I came across that that verse in Jesus talking about adultery, and I'm just going to tell you in Matthew 5, I mean, what do you think he's talking about? He said, if anyone looks at a woman lustfully, he has committed adultery in his heart. And if your right eye calls you to sin, poke it out. And if your right hand calls you to sin, poke it out. I mean, what do you think he's talking about, right? I mean, that's exactly what he's talking about, okay? And this is one of those things, like, like I get it that it's a struggle, but we often like kind of term this in the point of like addiction kind of thing. Let, let me tell you, this is, this is, though you may label it as an addiction, the, the, the greater issue is self-control, all right? And, and here's why it's a red flag, because Proverbs says, a man without self-control is like a city broken down and without walls. We have this conversation in my house all the time about this verse with all of my children because self-control affects every area of our lives. And what Solomon is telling us there is that a wall is what defended a city. And when there were no walls, there were, you can be invaded at any point in time. There is no protection. You can be overrun at any moment. And so if, if you are considering uh, you know, getting into a relationship with someone and and, and he cannot, or even she cannot, because I mean, I understand now that from studies I've read, at least 50% of women now view pornography on a, on, on a very regular basis, that if you cannot exhibit self-control, then one, you are not ready to be married and you do not need to marry that person because it, 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 it will not just show itself in that area of life. And if that and if and if he can't exhibit self-control by keeping his hands off of you when, when you're not married, 
Because you have to think, because you're like, oh, no, when we get married, it'll be okay. No, that, that self-control is just going to move into something else, right? And it will just keep moving into anything until you actually learn self-control. Because even though I actually was, I, I successfully stopped, because, you know, and, and let me say, I, 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 I despise the excuse like, well, I have to have my smartphone, right? Because, I mean, you know, most of you fall prey to pornography on your smartphones or some kind of electronic device. You know what I did? I got rid of all screens in my life for five years. You know why? Because it became serious. Jesus' words in Matthew 5 were serious enough to me that if, if this is how God felt about this sin, I was going to do whatever I could to get rid of it. You know, it takes 21 days to break a habit, but it takes 90 days to form a new one. Okay? Science has taught us this. So you may have to get rid of all electronic devices. Okay? Now, what I'll say to you, and we'll go with this a little bit later, is that, you know, I have not looked at pornography in over two decades. So you can totally overcome this. So this fact, like, it's an addiction, it can't be overcome, that's just a lie. It's straight from the pit of hell. Because if, if that's true, then the gospel's not. If Jesus died to set you free and you can't be set free from this sin, then the gospel's all a lie. So you can absolutely be set free from it. But you've got to ask yourself in these issues, and you've got to look into these issues. And, and I would say self-control is a massive issue, because it's not just sexually, right? It can be food, it can be other things. But there, there, you've got to ask yourself, ladies, if he is willing to put his hands on you and to directly defy what God has said, how will you be able to trust him in the future? See, if you can't trust him before you get married, what do you think is going to happen the moment you do get married and he's out of your sight? All these patterns you set in, Satan is now going to work into your minds over and over and over. What do you think he's doing? He couldn't control himself before marriage. What do you think he's now doing when he's not around? Because this is going to play over into his work. It's going to play over into how he deals with your children. It, this is going to affect every area of his life. And there's, there are other red flags, but I will tell you, this is my big red flag. If you don't see self-control, they are not ready, they are not ready to be married, and you should not consider marrying someone who does not exhibit self-control. So before we talk about anything else, and I, I would like to go off of that, um, obviously, you know, we're talking about uh, relationships and whatnot, but on that topic, do you have any words of advice to those who struggle with self-control and are seeking to uh, grow in that and become ready for a relationship in that way? Like, what advice would you give to someone who's young and struggles with self-control? Fasting, prayer. I like, and I know it's kind of, ah, no, it, like, I mean, like, you've got to learn. I mean, Paul said he beat his body into submission, right? I mean, I mean, you, you, you think you've been fighting this battle and Satan's just going to give it up? You, you, you think your flesh is just going to give it up? I mean, we have to bring in supernatural weapons to destroy these strongholds in our lives. Um, I will say one of the quickest ways to overcome your sin is to confess your sin, right? And, and, and So let me just kind of turn, turn it a little bit, you know, because I have a, a teenage son now and and this is where this idea of self-control has really been, been hitting me. And so, you know, J Josiah and I, we've, we've been having these conversations. And, and this is what I ask us, Josiah, how's your battle with self-control? And, you know, and so for the first few times, he was, he was confessing stuff to me and, and, and struggling, with, you know, with certain things. And, and not just in the air, but just in general in self-control. 
And we did that for a few months. And then I finally told him, I said, Josiah, part of you becoming a biblical man is that you learn to confess your own sin. I'm not going to ask you anymore. I expect the moment you sin, you come to me and you tell me about it. Because if you do that, you'll be a really good husband one day and you'll be a really good father one day. But if you're always waiting for other people to come ask you how you're doing, for you to confess your sin, you'll never be the man God wants you to be. So if, if be incredibly quick to confess. Now again, if it's been a few weeks, I still do ask because I know he's a teenage boy and, it, and it's hard to talk to your dad about these things sometimes. But we're, de we're developing these patterns of, of confession. And this, is what, and this is what I tell my son. I said, Josiah, I want you to know there are times I'm really hard on you about certain things. But in this area, I'm incredibly proud of you because you are choosing to fight a fight that most men will never attempt in their lives. And if you learn how to have self-control, you will be a blessing to God and to every person you interact with for the rest of your life. That is why self-control is so vitally important for life in your marriage and in your family. So obviously, Esme's been talking about his relationship with his son. Um, and as we think about that, we realize that relationships affect more than just us. Our relationships affect others as well. So this next question related to dating is along those lines. And the question is, how do you balance your wishes and your parents' wishes when it comes to pursuing a partner? What if they want you to date someone who is of the same race as you, and that's not the desire that you want? Um, what if your parents are believers and have these ideas, or even what if your parents are not believers and have these ideas? How do you balance what you think is right from a relational standpoint in dating and what your parents think is right? I agree to this one. Um, okay, let, let's start with this, right? The, the proper way to think through this maybe is, is thinking through layers of authority and where our ultimate allegiance and authority lie. And so, first and foremost, right, our allegiance is to God and authority is from Him, right? And so we need to uh, understand that when we're asked to do something by friends or family or whoever it may be, if that advice or those commands or those wishes are in direct violation of God and his words, then we need to reject them. So, so let's start with that. Um, so if, if, you, if you see something where the wishes of your parents would violate uh, something in Scripture, um, I would say like it, it, God asks of you to stand up to your parents um, respectfully, but that you would stand up to them to honor God and his word. Now, um, this is a difficult question for me personally to answer because I'm a white male who grew up in the West. And so when you ask that question, and I'm an Enneagram 8, for those of you guys that don't know, so I just don't care what my parents think most of the time. Right? So like, the, the reality is, is 
I know that for some of you guys in this room, right, because of your cultural background and your heritage, this matters a lot deeper for you. I was reading a book recently where they were talking about um, an issue that someone had been disfellowshipped from this church in uh, the Philippines. And when the American pastor who was there was with them, they kind of asked him, like, is it okay for us to invite this family back into fellowship at the church? They want to become members. He asked, well, what did they do? And they didn't want to explain it at first. He said, but, well, you can't ask me that question and then not tell me what happened. Like, it's just not, that's not how this works. And come to find out this couple had married against their parents' wishes. And this had been a case where they had been put under church discipline for not following their parents. That would never happen, more than likely, in a church in the West. Just not. You know, our culture is incredibly individualistic, and so we read the Scripture through an individualistic lens, whereas understanding some of you guys even in this room come from Eastern descent that cares a lot more about what family thinks, and there's an honor-shame connection to even the way that you're going to read the Scripture this is going to be a much more difficult question for you to process through because Scripture does ask that you honor and respect your father and your mother. And so I don't think there is a clear-cut answer here at, at the end of the day. Um, I do not believe that God requires of you to marry who your parents tell you to marry. I do not think that it is a requirement. However, not marrying someone who your parents are um, okay with. Be ready for the, the, the fallout that will come from that. If you, if you choose to marry someone that your parents are not okay with, and I, I think this can go across racial lines or whatever else the question was asking, you just need to understand that there, there will likely be fallout from that. Um, when Jesus is in his hometown and his, he's preaching and his family shows up, uh, they're freaked out by him and they're trying to stop him from doing what he's doing because he's embarrassing them. And when his disciples say, hey, your family's outside, he looks at them and says, these are my brothers and these are my sisters. And so I, it, it's a fine line between figuring out, hey, what, what does God require of me, of me in this relationship? and in any future relationship, and how do I honor my parents in this, and where does the Word of God speak plainly and clearly about something to where I would have to stand up against my parents, whether they're believers or not? Because I, you know, to, whoever asked this question, your parents being a believer or not a believer doesn't really matter a ton, other than that if, if your parents are racist and they're believers, they need to repent. But, um, you know, ultimately, it, let me say this from a practical perspective. Unless you're convinced that God is calling you to marry someone not of your race, how do I word this without coming across as racist? Pray for me, guys. Don't automatically discount what your parents are saying. Maybe that's the way I would put it. Um, but don't assume that what your parents are saying, are saying to you is what you have to follow at the same time. Um, there, there are realities of race and cultural backgrounds that are just a real thing. And there may be some wisdom in even what your parents are saying to you, even if you don't have to follow their advice fully. It doesn't mean that everything they're saying to you is not wise and it does not have some hint of truth or wisdom in it. And if nothing else, at least think through what they're saying and try to attempt to have a conversation with them 
about why they're coming from that area. And then if they continue to tell you that they're going to disown you or whatever it may be because of that, that might be where you have to draw the line in the sand and say, okay, do I choose God or do I choose my parents? And I would encourage you, obviously, to choose God every time. Did I answer that? Maybe. Okay, I'm getting some yeses. Okay. Yeah, let me, let me just underline and highlight something that Kevin said, like he did with uh, Leah a second ago. So, so basically what Kevin just did was set a list of priorities there. And he said the first priority is God. He comes first. Scripture obviously says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then to love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus always comes first. And Jesus' standard is not that you marry someone within your race. Jesus' standard is that you marry someone who is in Christ. So he always comes first. So highlight. Um, and now let me tr transition to th this next question. So the next question is this question. How do you know that you love someone emotionally and not just physically, especially when you're in college and emotions and things could be so jumbled up? How, how do you figure that out? So for those of you that don't know me, I'm a teacher. And as a teacher, you're supposed to say that there are no such things as bad questions or bad answers, right? Um, but I would have to say that this question to me is coming from the wrong place. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, because I actually think biblically, love is defined not as physical or emotional. Um, and so, right, the question is kind of like, how can you make sure it's emotional and not just physical? And I would say it's neither. <laughs> um, right, biblically, the word agape in the Greek means like self-sacrificing love, like that unconditional love, um, like we see displayed on the cross by Jesus. That's the type of love <laughs> that's supposed to be the foundation of a marriage. Um, obviously, we, we play that out imperfectly as, as sinners, but um, <clears throat> the, the physical will fall short and the emotional will fall short it has to be more than both of those. Um, so I don't really know how to even answer the question because I, I kind of disagree with the foundation of the question. Um, in that, I, I would just encourage you instead of how do you see, challenge yourself, right? How do you see this playing out in action, right? Love in scripture is, is action-based, right? That famous 1 Corinthians 13, that's not actually talking about marriage at all. Um, but it is talking about love within the body of believers. And so love is patient, right? Love is kind. Love is, right, self-sacrificing. Love is, um, doesn't keep record of wrongs, right? The list is lengthy. Um, and, and choosing to have that perspective and that in mind um, when, you're, when you're living this out. And then in turn, hopefully seeing some of those things on display in the, the person that you're um, pursuing a relationship with that's what you're looking for, not the, the physical and not the emotional tie. I'm not saying that those things are all bad, um, but they can't be the foundational piece of it. That was a good answer. But I, I think the question might be this, as I've reread re it several times up here. It, it, the question is, how do you know that you love someone emotionally and not just physically? Um, if by emotionally we're also talking about relationally in that sense, what I would say is it's by not being physical. Right? Because, uh, let me say, don't you, don't, huh? Oh, I got an amen? Woohoo! 
Um, I mean, this is the problem with you like being physical is that it confuses everything. It 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 messes you up. And we're gonna I think we're gonna get a little deeper into this. This is something I could go on for hours hours about is that the problem, the moment you introduce something physical into it, it overrides that stuff, you know, because I mean, here's the deal. Like we've been married almost 18 years now. And I mean, like just so you're clued in on this, if you you didn't know about this, like we do not spend most of our time cuddling, snuggling and having sex. That'd be a great life. It would be a fantastic life. But that, that is a very small portion of the 24 hours, okay? Um, and the fact that you, when you get into that part of the relationship and that's what your relationship is built on because every time you go out, you're doing it, you do it and you're young and like you don't know if you actually like the person, right? Because it's kind of like, I mean, we sit around like a, just like this, like a lot of the day, right? Or how to deal with kids or whatever. Like, like how do you know if you actually like that person, Okay. And then the other part of this is, again, she was getting to this. You know, we, we talk about um, love marriages. Um, I, I love having, because we, we have an international student ministry before all the COVID thing, they were in our house. And we have a lot of Indian students. And I love having them over because they always talk about marriage in two contexts, an arranged marriage and a love marriage. That's how they always talk about it. Like, you know, in India, we do arranged marriages, but some of them are come over here and they're trying to do love marriages. But let me say, what, what we're actually talking about is an attraction marriage. Okay? The, the question is like, am I attracted to this person. And, and, and that is not a good reason to get married to someone. Like, you know, let me just kind of burst your bubble kind of in this thing. Like, I don't believe in the one, all right? Because you can enter into a covenant with any one of the opposite sect and make a, make, make a commitment to love that person for the rest of your life. You don't have to be physically attracted to them. You don't have to be emotionally attracted. You don't have to do any of those things. And you can make this commitment. Now, I would advise all those things as it makes it wonderful, okay? But you don't have to have that to enter into a covenant marriage and to commit to that because God's design for marriage is much higher um, than, than all of that. So moving on in the relationships we're talking about, how do you know when you're out of, uh, as this person termed it, the honeymoon stage? So everything's nice and happy and no arguments. And with that then, how do I handle arguments after the stage when disagreements might come up, et cetera? You can go ahead. You were, you were, you were the funniest in responding to this. Go ahead. You don't leave the honeymoon stage while dating. You just don't. Do you have kids? You have a house payment? Got health problems? You don't leave the honeymoon stage while dating. You just don't. Which is why, by the way, if you're having major, major issues while you're dating, you should probably take that maybe as one of those red flags we were talking about earlier. Because if you can't figure it out when you're not having to sleep in the same bed and figure out your finances together and figure out how to raise your kids and reconcile things with your family and move forward, like it's only going to get harder. Like, like in all seriousness. So you just don't. So I kind of, I reject that question. Here, there you go. Simple. You are in the honeymoon stage. And that's cool. Honeymoons are fun. I had a great time on my honeymoon. But just know you, like, you, you don't leave that. Usually until months into actually exchanging vows with somebody. And so use dating as maybe the 
the ground on which of saying like, hey, am I seeing kind of what I even said earlier about that picture of what God's doing in someone's life? Are we figuring things out or are we not? If you're not figuring things out, God is probably telling you, you should hit the eject button. And, and by the way, this may, I, I feel led to say this, so this is prophetic, so I'm going Pentecostal here for a second, so enjoy it. Hitting the eject button before you get married is better than wanting to hit the eject button once you're already married. Like, I, I have counseled people who were engaged to call off their marriage. And my advice to them was, Hey, like I get it. Sending sending out notices after sending out wedding invitations is awkward. So is being married for a long time to somebody you don't want to be married to. Right? So like the reality is is like hit the eject button before you make a promise you don't want to make. Cuz that's what you're doing. God is not demanding you marry whoever you're dating right now, just as an aside. Oh. So uh, I guess then, and this will probably lean more into the marriage talk, which, you know, we'll just hit it now with the question, though. Um, how do you handle arguments then uh, in a relationship? <laughs> yes, ma'am. Why is that being passed this way? <laughs> oh, I'll answer. Come on. It's <laughs> <laughs> not even a question on here. I need to ask how do you handle arguments. Well, not- in marriage. She's asking, how do you handle arguments in marriage? Now, in marriage or dating? In marriage. It's very simple. Yes, dear. That's it. Right? Yep, newlyweds. Come on, boys, have you learned yet? Oh, say they hadn't learned yet. Okay. <laughs> That's why they're here. <laughs> um... Yeah, I mean, how do you how do you handle our, I mean, it, Ask him who's usually the first one to try to make things right. <laughs> oh, she always is. I mean, yeah, because I mean, she's a, she wants to process immediately. I need time so I don't bite her head off, right? Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's there's no like real like what are we arguing about? Who's right and wrong? I mean, that, that, that's just one of those things that. You, this is why you had to have a biblical foundation, right? I mean, this is why God has to be at the center of the marriage because it's, at some point, you both have to know to which standard toward which you are to move, right? Because, like, the, the Bible tells me to love my wife as Christ loved the church. And, I like, I'm not dumb. Like, I know, when I've, I know when I'm not done that, right? And so, therefore, when we're in an argument and I haven't loved my wife as Christ loved the church, it's my responsibility to go and to... And let me just say this. We have this we have this thing about apologizing. Did, did you know apologizing is not in the Bible? Do you know this? Go find apologizing in the Bible. It doesn't. It's just to confess your sin. So when you go to the person and go, hey, I'm sorry I did this. No. You go, hey, I need to confess that I sinned against you. That, that's a good way to deal with an argument. That's how you should deal with an argument. Um, you know, don't use and, if, or but. I mean, I, like, we, we've gone all day uh, about this thing, but Kevin wants to buy it. So I'll give it I think maybe just, and this will this will go even for marriage, maybe. Think, when you, when you think on like the front end, like, take a step back and like, why are we arguing? 
like 99.9% arguments are centered around you wanting your way and the other person wanting their way. So just die to that. Like if you want to be married to somebody, you, you better die to that or it's not going to work. So whoever's asking this question, stop trying to get your way all the time. I mean, it, it, it really is that simple. If you want to get your way all the time, be single. Right? There, I mean, like, and by the way, that's okay. Paul, I mean, Paul recommended it. Paul's like, look, I like doing me. And I like church planning. And I like doing it whenever I want, wherever I want. Self-aware man. Right? Like, if, if you want to do that, don't get married. Don't date. Don't, don't date. If you want to do that, do not date. Because you're lying to somebody the moment you start dating somebody. Like 100%. But if you want to be married, be prepared to die to self. This is why God designed marriage to be a way to sanctify you. Because he will force you to die to yourself. Right? That, that, that is how you handle it. Right? The, really, in any argument, you don't even need to be dating somebody. If you're arguing with somebody, you're likely trying to get your way and save face. And so is the other person. So you need to learn to work your way through that. I would encourage you to go read Matthew 18 on how to deal with conflict and go read the Proverbs on how to deal with disagreements with other people, to not be easily offended, right? to extend grace, all the things that Scripture teaches us. But those apply outside of dating and marriage. So something that we've been discussing this whole time is related to culture. And so I know that this next question is going to be very... Um, against our culture as Americans, but it's a valuable question. Um, it was great that someone asked this. So the question is, what do gender roles look like in dating as opposed to marriage? Is there a difference in gender roles in dating than they should be in marriage? What does that look like? I'm assuming this person's coming from Ephesians 5, like mindset, okay. Um, Dudes, you are not your girlfriend's keeper. Ladies, he is not your taskmaster who you must submit to in every situation. That includes marriage. Um, again, what I said earlier, God first, right? Then, then your spouse, family, right? Th those are the order that, that we kind of, the lens that we kind of look at things from. So... I think maybe to say what you should be working towards, what you should be encouraged in, is you should be looking for a pattern in your significant other that shows that they desire to follow God's design in Ephesians 5, right, where the husbands are loving their wives as Christ loved the church, and wives are submitting to their husbands as to the Lord. That You're looking for a pattern. You're not looking for perfection there. And by the way, I don't think we have time to define all that and talk about what all that means, but you should see a pattern that's growing towards that in, in both people. But when you're dating somebody, no, you are not required to do whatever your husband, or your boyfriend says, ladies, um, especially if it's not in line with scripture. At the same time, guys, right? Because I think we've been hard on the dudes here today. Dude, because ladies, y'all got problems. You do, trust me. I pastor this church. I see them. If you have a significant other who's very, very needy and is constantly causing quarrels and, and whatever else um, and is 
showing a pattern that wants to fight for every inch of territory in their life, like that should be a red flag to you. Like, do you want to deal with that for the rest of your life? Because that's what God will be calling you to as he sanctifies her with the washing of the word. So I think you're looking for patterns that are growing in submission to God and his word and what he asks, but he doesn't place those roles on us because we've not taken covenantal vows at that point in time. I think that's also why it's really important to take to heart what Kevin mentioned earlier about who you even consider dating, that you're not trying to place these roles on someone if you're just dating to date and you're not actually looking at someone as someone you're potentially going to marry. Um, Because that I've seen a lot of um, people get, again, a lot of emotional investment in all of these things because they're not going into this relationship as in someone that they, you know, are considering marrying, but just they're dating. And then they place all these, as women, I've heard a lot of women who place all these expectations on the guy to do these things when you're not even talking about potentially marrying, or maybe he's not even in that place of even considering it. So you shouldn't even be dating in the first place, which would fix a lot of the questions of what those roles should even look like. So now for the next set of questions, we're going to move into a wonderful category called boundaries. Um, So just as a a personal uh, question for all of you, what are some examples of boundaries that you all had during your dating period? Oh, You said personal. Are we all answering this? Okay. Well, that's what I thought he said. I didn't know if I was supposed to speak for both of us was what I was trying to clarify. Okay, so boundaries that we had. So for Daniel and I, because of um, both of us having become believers later in life while we were both in college, both of us having had um, a lot of just ugly sin in our past and terrible relationships and other things with the opposite sex, we both knew that we had to be very guarded um, in our boundaries. And so we actually didn't fully date, though, so it's kind of a hard. Um, I mean, we really got engaged. We, we talked for a while um, before we even made a step further and um, we were in a distance from one another, not in the same city. So it was a little bit unique. And then when we did get engaged, we, um, well, we had chosen not to even kiss before we were engaged. And then when we were engaged, we did kiss. And that was like the only thing that we would do because we both knew that we didn't trust ourselves um, or, I mean, didn't feel like it was right to put that burden on the other person that if we were to allow ourselves to get in a situation um, that would compromise what we knew we wanted to go into marriage as being, um, for both of us, just being pure in our relationship and in that foundation. And so we had those kind of um, guidelines. We probably did, well, we did even do stupid things like 
stayed up way too late together. Um, that's something I would highly recommend not doing. Um, I, again, let me just, for a disclaimer, if for any of you women maybe who did not grow up with brothers or don't really know, or maybe your parents never had these kind of conversations with you, I was really naive to what the level of uh, temptation that it would put a guy under to be spending lots of hours alone with them and late at night and those kind of things. Like, I was like, whatever, you know, I had no idea what I was, how I was tormenting him. And so um, now I understand why he was like, let's get married tomorrow, not let's wait five months, you know. And I kept pushing for the date that I wanted. But I had no idea. And so I just tell you that because, um, you know, part of our, our um, just what we need to do is in, in that respect for them and in, in that spouse, someone you're considering to be a potential spouse, that you would be, um, that you would be mindful of that, that you would also, it's on you to not put them into a, a situation that would further um, cause more temptation for them to sin. Because even if they can, you know, with, withstand that temptation and not cross the line with you, you might be encouraging them to go home and watch pornography or do other things um, because, and I'm not saying their sin is still their sin. They own what they do in their actions, but you are being part of that encouragement toward it. And so it is a, a, a strong, um, I would just highly recommend that you be very guarded and that you set good boundaries about what you do physically um, and even maybe depending on both your past, having those discussions of what you feel like is a fair level that you can withstand and constantly communicating about that. I'll give you a weird one that you probably never thought of. Uh, this was this is one that she she had come up with. We actually did not pray together before we got married. And uh, why? Why wouldn't you pray together? Well, but not like together, like, you know, because some couples like they make because it's a very intimate experience and you can confuse that that part of it. You, you, you probably never thought of that. You know, again, I, I'm going to go back to the whole boundary thing is that let me just say from God's perspective, it is man's responsibility to set the physical standard in the relationship. And that if he keeps pushing that boundary, like he's just always going to keep pushing that boundary. Like that, that should just be a major red flag to you um, in, in your relationship. And so, ladies, this is one of those standards you should set that he sets an appropriate sexual ethic with you, and those boundaries are maintained. He should be the one setting the boundaries. And if he's not setting the boundaries, and that's probably someone you don't want to be with. But guys, it's also a clue to you because a lot of ladies in here, you look for that love and acceptance. You are, you are wanting what your daddy never gave you. Let's just be honest about it. And you are going to some man to find it. And so guys, you, you need to see how she's going to respond when you tell her no. Because some women are going to push the boundary at you because they want that love, that acceptance, what, the, what they never got from their father and, and what they're not looking to Jesus toward. And only by establishing that will you ever know that you, that, 
that that is how she's viewing you and she is loving you and putting you as an idol in front of Jesus. And that is why it's so important to do it according to God's design. And he lays this out in the Old Testament. And I don't have time because it's a sermon in itself um, to explain how it all works. But it is exactly how God designed it. And so men should set the sexual ethic in a boundary. Uh, boundary. And it's a great way to find out where both are in their maturity in the relationship. So this next question is really practical. And the question is, how much physical touch is appropriate? Even if that physical touch isn't necessarily sexual in nature, but just long hugs or cuddling, where's that line between how much physical touch is good and bad? So I took all the questions that I um, said it was the wrong question. Um, (laughs) So I think to start off, right, this is the... um, I think all of us have been have asked this question probably at some point, um, but it's the wrong question to ask. I think if we think about this morning's sermon on if our our goal, our purpose is to glorify God, like answer that question, right? Not how far can I go before God's angry at me, right? Or or some twisted mindset that we have. Um, yeah, that that's not the the mindset we should have. Instead, sw- switching it to how can I be glorifying God? And then, like, answer that question. It, okay, is it? Like, right? No. Mm, okay. Practically, though, I'll answer the question. Um, I think there are probably going to be slightly different answers for different people. And I would say find out what that is for you where it's, it's not lustful in nature or um, causing your mind to go places where it, it shouldn't. And then go a step less. <laughs> Does that make any sense? Um, because if we go, if we create these lines, right, then it's really tempting to be like, nobody can see my feet, but like, you know, like, you know, like, right? Um, whereas if we, <laughs> no, um, it, if we want to be wise, and I would hope that we do, um, to cut ourselves off far before the line, um, you know, whatever that hypothetical line is for you. But um, yeah, I think, you know, if I look back, we, didn't answer the question before of what our own boundaries were, but I think if Kevin and I were to answer that question um, and tie it into this, like, I wish we had had stronger boundaries, right? That we had been more, um, like, cut and dry, right? We kind of had some, like, wonky boundaries, and then as we entered into engagement and the longer we were in a relationship, the closer we would, like, you know, okay, maybe, you know, um, I mean, I walked through a lot of hardships because of that, right? We had to confess our sins um, to those around us and, and repent of those sins and walk through that process and, um, and then enter into marriage with, even within our own relationship, baggage. And um, you might think that that doesn't, that that, you know, our culture says, you know, like, practice what's going to happen, right? And then it'll make it better. Like, no, it makes it worse, I promise. So, um, yeah, my suggestion to you would be, what, where you feel convicted as the line, um, go, go at least one step less intimate. Um, and I would also add in, this doesn't answer this question, but um, back, back to the boundaries um, in general, is, is have people uh, in your life that 
maybe you haven't gotten really good at that confessing part, like Daniel said, that are asking you the hard questions consistently um, and training you to confess your sins um, in this regard, but in, and in others. I just want to ask you guys, because in 15 years of being a follower of Jesus, I've never had a married couple tell me they wish they had set less physical boundaries. In your all's ministry, have you had anyone ever say they wish they had set less? There you go. I've had plenty of people say they wish they had said more. I've never had anybody say wish they had said less. So then, as we continue to talk about boundaries, uh, our next question is, what are your thoughts on cohabitation before marriage? Is it a matter of right and wrong, wisdom and folly, or both? Maybe neither. How, so basically, cohabitation. You get me again. Um, okay, so rewind quite a while back to when I was in college. My last semester, my senior year, I had an empty spot that I needed like some credits that, and I had nothing left in my major or my minors or anything. So I decided to take a class called The Psychology of Human Intimacy. Yeah, I was brave. Um, in a secular college, by the way. Um, so I went into that mainly to have, I don't know, just I wanted to, like a drastically different experience. I, I, a lot of my college experience was within Christian communities and besides my classes. And so I really just kind of wanted this like last class of eye-opening insight into the world's perspective um, of human intimacy and what that looked like. And I was incredibly shocked that my non-Christian professor, um, I don't remember his religion, he did have one, but um, said, I mean, many times, if you choose to cohabitate with your significant other, please do not tell me because I will yell at you. If you want to set yourself up for failure, then go do it. But do not come tell me about it. And that was fascinating to me coming from a, a Christian perspective of like, wait, but I thought everybody says, you know, like, oh, that's going to like help. And he was like, absolutely not adamantly opposed. Um, I was going to say what you were going to say. But I'll let you know. Yeah, so we have uh, very clear sociological, sociological data on this. Um, if you want to cohabitate, 85% uh, of all couples who cohabitate before marriage end up getting divorced. So if you want to have an 85% chance of getting divorced, uh, go cohabitate. I mean, like, you know, sociological proves it, and then, but then the, the Bible directly says no. I mean, like, it, 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 it don't do it. Like, yeah, I, I don't, I don't get the whole cohabit the whole co cohabitation thing at at all. Um, it's just it's a recipe for disaster. So the Bible says don't do it. You shouldn't do it. And all the sociological data says if you do it, you're just your 85% chance you're going to fail. So, pretty simple. So let's go meta for a second. So, meta. what is the difference between guarding your heart and being in love slash loving your partner? Is it fun to talk about the future and to lean into a relationship whenever you're thinking about, you know, more serious things coming up? Like, where, where is that line between just having fun and being in a relationship and really guarding your heart and not going too far. We gave this one to Leah. 
I don't want to answer this. I don't know. Um, I think probably because it's hard for me to like understand. Well, I, I can say this. I can say that before I was a believer and I had chosen to walk in a very unhealthy, dysfunctional, abusive relationship, um, I did. I, I gave all of my heart and all of who I was to someone and would always dream about the future and talk about all those things um, because I thought that that's what you were supposed to do. Um, so when I became a believer and I really surrendered my heart to Christ and, and my future to him, it became one in which it was, Lord, my future is, is yours. So whatever you have for me, I'm yours, and I will trust you that you know what's best for me. And there were moments um, as a believer that I had crushes on guys, absolutely, and like those kind of things in college and thought, you know, I, I would, of course, visualize or hope for what the future might have for me. But at the end of the day, it always came back to trusting Jesus. And if he did not open doors, if he was not guiding and directing me in those paths, even with some guy friends that I was good friends with, you know, that I um, really admired and respected, and they met a lot of the qualifications that I had, but God wasn't leading us forward. God was not saying, yes, that you should be more than friends um, in any respect. I chose to allow the Lord to guard my heart in that, and um, and I trusted him. And there were times that I had broken heart, you know, and I know I've talked to some of you women in here who've dealt with some of these things. And um, but I can promise you this, that if you trust the Lord, he knows what you what's best for you. He knows what you need for your sanctification. Um, and he's going to lead you in a way that's going to bring about your good and his glory. And so when I when he knew that I was in a place that I was ready um, to and mature enough to make a step forward toward marriage is when Daniel came into my life and God started to open my heart to him and, and really lead me forward in that. Like the Lord did that. It wasn't me seeking it. It wasn't me looking for someone. And it certainly wasn't me pursuing him. Um, and, and, and opening my heart and dreaming about the future without God is the center without him is the foundation and the one driving me wherever that was going to lead. And so because of that and because both of us had conversations together, we were able to say we feel like the Lord is leading us forward in this relationship. We feel like he's calling us to move in this direction. And we didn't even really know each other that well, but we knew that that was where he was leading. And so we trusted him in that. And that's where we began to open our heart more, where we began to allow him to, um, to just help create more of a connection between us. And the, and the question came up earlier about like the love and the emotions and the feelings, like those things actually came secondary to stewarding what God had, um, was leading in us in our own relationships with Christ first, and then toward our friendship and, and that, um, courtship, if you will, in a different way. But, um, so really it was letting him be the one who, um, told us, you know, and guided us how to open our hearts to, 
toward that and so that he could be the one in charge. So this question leans more in the topic of sex, but I do think correlates well to boundaries. Um, so from a biblical perspective, what is sex? And what would the Bible consider too far in a relationship? Is there a gray line between sexual acts that are appropriate and not appropriate before marriage? Great timing for them, right? <laughs> Let me read that again. I had something, and now I need to hear the question again. All right. I want to know what sex in the Bible means and what the Bible would consider too far in a relationship. Is there a gray line between sexual acts that are appropriate and not appropriate before marriage? No. There's not a gray line. Paul says in Corinthians, let there not even be a hint of sexual immorality amongst you. And that the term for sexual immorality there is translated from this Greek word porneia. And the definition of that word pretty much means any sexual act, period. So I think what I'm being asked here is basically, is this what like the Bill Clinton, Monica Lewinsky question basically? Like, what is sex? Wrong question. I mean, in all seriousness, this question is premised incorrectly. Right? I, I think my wife said it earlier, right? Like, tying it into what we heard this morning from God's Word in Psalm 24. You should be asking, like, what, what, how can my relationship glorify God? Not, hey, does this not bring glory to God? Just, just from like a common sense perspective, if you're asking the question, it probably means no. Like just, so I think like the, the reality is, is like if you're setting clear boundaries and the Bible's term for sexual immorality is basically a junk drawer term for any and all acts, then, then no, there's not really a gray line. Like, from a biological definition of sexual intercourse, yes, I know what that means. Yeah, I know what sexual intercourse is. I have two kids. But, like, the reality is, is like, from, thank you, whoever liked that, you're welcome. <laughs> but just because you're not having sexual intercourse with your girlfriend or boyfriend doesn't mean you aren't doing something that's an abomination in the sight of the Lord. And... This is why community is so important. This is why um, having people that love Jesus in your life is not a request from God, but a requirement by God. Because you need other people to be able to speak into your life and tell you, like, what's going on there, right? Where, how are you, how, where are your boundaries? Are you setting clear boundaries? Are you following those clear boundaries? Are you outside the bounds of what Scripture would say is okay for you? And speaking as somebody that, went outside those boundaries both before I knew the Lord um, and then afterwards even, it, it will create drama and issues that you're going to have to process through with your spouse if you awaken love before it's season. It, it just will. And so 
I don't know how many people told me that before I before I was married and then faced that reality, but I'll just ask you, please listen to the people that are telling you that now before you do that. You know, God's word says it for a reason. Um, and so I'm not going to sit up here and try to define what the, the line is for you. Just know it's way before you think it is. It, it, it really just is, and you'll be safe that way. And that, that's, you want to seek to bring glory and honor to God, not figure out what the line is of what you can do until then. You know, I'll, again, I'll, I'll just piggyback on that. Um, you know, now the other kid comes in. Do we have another bathroom in this place? I mean, it's ridiculous. Um, okay, I'm not going to say this now. Um, this is this is what I know you all all want, right? Like like every single person wants a mind blowing sexual relationship inside their marriage, right? Nobody's in there like, no, I hope my sex life sucks, right? No, like nobody is, right? And. I'm just going to tell you, to give yourself the absolute best chance of having a mind-blowing, awesome sexual relationship inside of marriage, don't do anything before you get married. I just wait because, let me say, everything you do before marriage will decrease the chances of that happening inside your marriage. You, you, you are only ruining the future marriage that, that you say you want and the future relationship that you want by messing it all up, because because what you're doing, I mean, like, like you're creating trust issues. I mean, like like I know we're just like, oh, it's just sick. no, no. I mean, it is it is so much more than just sex or touching or whatever. I mean, you are creating massive trust issues in your marriage, and if you don't think Satan is going to capitalize on every one of those things to try and browbeat you and torment you, you are a fool. Okay, so like the best thing is just don't touch, right? Because trust me, like, I mean, it, you're going to figure it out, right? Like the whole thing, like, oh, you got to test drive a car before you buy it. You know, that was the big thing. Like, no, that, that's just stupid, right? It's like, because that's the thing of like, like, like I want to spend every minute with her because like I like her and I love her. You, get out of the room, out. You, out. We may not see that guy again. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so it will not go well for him when he gets home. Um, a lot of sanctification take place. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, because I mean, here, you know, and again, this, this is this is just that thing, and like and like guys, you like you need to be honest, all right? Like I'll go for you need to be like, listen. I think you are smoking hot and awesome. And here's the deal. If I touch you, it's going to make me insane. Right? It is totally okay to tell your prospective partner that. And it's like, therefore, I can't touch you because I don't trust myself with you if I touch you. I am that attracted to you. But guess what? I'm going to stay away from you. Now, I can tell you, you may think that's a dumb idea, but I can, almost, I can guarantee you Every woman will highly respect you 
that you understand your own self and you respect her enough to not touch her in that manner. Because when it comes to like the intimacy part of a relationship, trust is the greatest thing for intimacy and the depth to which your relationship can go. So every time you touch and cross these boundaries and bring more and more confusion and give yourself an opportunity to trip up, you are only ruining the next 50 years that you've been dreaming about your whole life for the sake of something momentary now. So just set the boundaries. And I promise you, that's the only way you can really know if you actually like the person. Because for me, it was like, I just like her. Like, even though I'm really looking forward to having sex with her when we get married, like, I could actually like hang out with her all the time and not have sex with her. I like her that much. And you got to understand, for a dude from my position, that was weird. Like, I had never thought that about any girl, right? Because I didn't, I didn't have any sisters growing up. So I immediately went into, I don't ever think about girls to every girl is a sexual object. And so this is the first one. It's like, I just like her. That was a foreign concept. So set the boundaries firm. And I promise it will be incredibly beneficial to you. It will be a blessing that you can't even imagine how great it is if you will not bring the, the, those clouds into your own marriage and have to work through those. So this is a great transition into talking about marriage in general. So let's just start walking down that road. So the first question is, why do so many men in the Bible have multiple wives? For example, Jacob with Rachel and Leah. What's up with that? <laughs> I'm, I'm gladly going to take this one. Um, and just, just so you know, like I know we're kind of getting there. There's, there's, five, there's five questions left. So we're coming to the end. I can tell you're, you're okay. But this, that's why we say this for the end, right? Okay. Uh, the, the actual question reads this. Why did so many men in the Bible have multiple wives and it was never discussed? Okay. So again, it was discussed. And every time you see it as an abject disaster. All right? I mean, like, God is like, this is so plain that this is so stupid. I don't even have to tell you how stupid it is. I'm just going to give you all the stories of how stupid it is. Right? I mean, so the, again, the Bible clearly defines from the beginning, one man, one woman. Human beings do stupid things. And we have all these incredible stories in the Bible of how stupid it is to marry more than one woman. Okay? Again, living in the African... I mean, I, I, men who think this is a good idea have got to be the dumbest creatures on planet Earth. It, it is... It, you, it, 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 it totally proves disevolution... It totally disproves evolution that we can actually hire creatures than these animals, all right? Because men have dumb ideas that they could actually love and satisfy more than one... Do you know how hard it is to love one woman... And to love her even adequately well, to have the dumb idea of having more than one. I mean, like you guys, almost all of you, I'm sure, assuming went to public school. You saw the cat fights that happened between girls who like boys, right? Yes. Put these two women in the same house for the rest of your life. And they're competing for your love and for your affection for one another. There is nothing dumber on earth than having more than one wife. And the Bible proves it over and over and over. There we go. 
So right in line with that, uh, Daniel, and maybe you can just answer it pretty quickly here, but can a man actually be satisfied with one woman? Yes. Okay. Uh, let, 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 me, let me say this, and then I'll pass it over to somebody else. Okay, you're going to get a little too much information right here. I'm sorry, baby. Um, here's the deal. Because these are the kind of discussions we had before we, we got married. Um, I said, look, I'll make you a promise. All right, I, no, no, let me say it this way. I'm like, baby, I love you. I think you are smoking hot. And I can't tell you how crazy I'm about you. But I'm going to make you a deal. I promise that I will never look at pornography and do everything in my power to not look lustfully upon another woman. But you need to understand there's a consequence for that. I have an incredibly high sex drive, and I'm going to aim all that at you, and I'm going to chase you around the kitchen for the rest of our lives. Do you agree to that? And surprisingly, she said yes. <laughs> and it's awesome. And we do it all the time. <laughs> and it gets better all the time. You know why? Because we don't mess it up. Like there's no trust issue with us. She knows that I don't look at other women. I chase her all the time. Like, I haven't walked by her in 18 years of marriage and not slapped her on the butt when I walked by or grabbed her butt. And even, even yesterday, I walked by her and she goes, I can't believe you didn't grab me on the butt when you walked by. <laughs> yes, you can be completely holy and totally. You said it in front of our kids, so I figured it was in front of them. <laughs> you can be absolutely, but you know what? You have got like Job in Job 31.6. Job said, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully upon a virgin. And I fight with every fiber of my being to not look lustfully upon another woman. Am I perfect? No, but I fight it because I want to fight for my marriage. Because I want to fight for Leah. Because I want to fight for my kids and for my grandchildren. And it is an amazing marriage when you have that kind of intimacy and trust among one another. And so you can completely be satisfied with one woman. I mean, I'm not going to add anything to what Daniel said um, because I, the answer is yes. Um, I want to answer this because I'm perceiving the person who asked this question having some major trust issues um, about dating or marriage one day. And so um, whoever wrote this question or if you are resonating with this question, um, especially if you're a female, um, I would highly encourage you to talk to somebody about, about this because um, you're going to want to process through this long before you're dating or married to, some, to someone. Uh, you don't want to enter into a relationship off the bat not trusting a guy, um, especially if that guy hasn't given you a reason not to trust him yet. And so I, I say that more as like, like from as a pastoral heart. That if the red flag questionnaire that might be your own red flag for you, if you're asking this question. Um, I know that there are plenty of men um, who have likely 
given a reason to ask that question. There are there are there are plenty of men have who have, have likely given you a reason to ask that question, but that doesn't mean your future spouse will be a continuation of the reason why you're asking that question. And so in in community with people that you trust, talk through that, process through that, and then you need to pray and work it, work it out with the Lord so that so that you might be ready to do that. Uh, otherwise, you're gonna have a hard time enjoying sexual intimacy inside of your own marriage with your future spouse if you're constantly asking yourself that question. And again, I echo everything Daniel said. Yes, absolutely. It's a lot of fun. So get married. It's enjoyable. All right. So this is also a question specifically for you guys. And the question is, in what ways have you seen God draw you more into holiness through your marriage? So, Leah, I feel like you should start for obvious reasons. Obvious reasons. <laughs> Whew, I don't know if that's a knock on me or Daniel. but oh, it, was, uh, it was definitely him. On Daniel. Oh. <laughs> I will own this one, though, because it is funny. Uh, for a long time, when we would talk with people about marriage in the early years, um, like this is like five or ten years in, I remember Daniel would just be like, oh, that first year, everything's easy. And 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 I, I honestly was not completely honest with him um, in the sense of how hard it was for me. Um, God was working out a lot of me becoming holier in that first year because I was a very selfish person. I We were 26 when we got married. And so I had lived on my own. I had lived overseas on my own. Like I did not depend on my parents anymore. I was not depending on anyone. And so for me to lay that aside, and I also am a very driven person, kind of have my own ideas of what I want to do. And so to all of a sudden like surrender those things and to recognize that I had a new authority over me that I had chosen to submit to in marriage, um, God had to do a lot of work in me. And so there were many nights that first year of marriage that I cried myself to sleep. And I was journaling a lot. Me and Jesus had a lot of heart-to-heart talks um, because it was truthfully very, very difficult for me to transition from being that single woman, um, independent and driven, to then, oh, I might have to sacrifice not getting to um, take, you know, I was in grad school, we were both in grad school, and I had to, I had to sacrifice my degree. Like, I won't take classes because we can't afford for both of us. I had to sacrifice, um, I had to take a job that sucked that I didn't want to do. I mean, the people were great, but like, I had no interest in doing that job. I wanted to do other things, but I had to do that because it was the right thing to help provide for our family and for that season, what God had in store. And so it was absolutely God working out um, a self-sacrificial love and me learning how to be holier and to put continually put only Jesus on the throne, not my ambition, not my career, not my desires or dreams or any of those things. And then to have to put up with someone who's so extremely different than you. And like we are night and day different in so many ways. 
And I just was not used to all of that. And so it was a lot of um, personal growth and holiness for many years. And then having a baby actually was the next level of uh, sacrifice. So we'll just put it at that in holiness. I was having sex every day, so I was happy. Um, I feel like I could list a lot of things, but I think I'll give a broad answer. Um, for me, like my, I don't know, personality has always been like described as like kind, right? And so all throughout life, like people are like, oh, Jackie's just kind, right? And, but entering into marriage, uh, revealed that I have a lot of like unkind parts, um, more so than had ever been noticed probably before. And so Kevin gets to see those unkind parts more than anyone else and graciously points them out in me, sometimes more gracious than others, but um, <clears throat> as you can imagine, right? But, but truly, like God has used that to, um, I think for any of us, right, hopefully as we walk with the Lord longer and longer, we, not that we start sinning more, right, but we but we become more and more aware of our sin. And God has certainly used marriage to point out a lot of those um, sins in me, mainly things like selfishness um, or control. Those are kind of big, broad topics, right? But for me, that I, I didn't necessarily think that I had major issues with um, because I don't mind serving and I don't mind those things, but the self-centeredness was still there and I just couldn't see it as clearly until entering into marriage and, and walking that out. I think another piece is um, Kevin, Kevin is really quick to, um, in Daniel's words, like confess his sin, right? And, and with that, he'll attach an apology. Um, and I'm not. Uh, I don't like to admit my faults. I like to pretend that I'm fine and perfect and great. And that's a lie, right? And so being married to Kevin has helped me grow in that because I get to see it on display on a regular basis. Um, what's wrong? basis means I'm screwing up and apologizing all the time. Okay, well, maybe I didn't say that. You said that. Um, but anyways, seeing that happen, right, is convicting to me and has helped change that in me of like, oh, right, I'm supposed to also be confessing my sins regularly and repenting as well. And just, you guys as a church should be thankful for Jackie because there's a lot of things that I want to say that I don't say to you guys because of her. So that's how God's making me more holy is like, just like the universal filter of you're not always right, Kevin. Keep your mouth shut. And it'll go well with you and your people, right? So uh, going back to the topic of uh, lust and some addictions there, how is a wife, so this would probably be more towards Jackie and Leah, uh, can you be supportive and assist your husband in sexual addictions uh, be it lusting after women on social media, in person, porn, uh, what can your role be in recovery? Okay, so this is worded as how can a wife do these things? Um, first, let me speak to those of you who are not yet married. Um, just because I know that pornography is a very powerful addiction. It is something that grips hold of many hearts, um, both men and women. But if you are considering entering into a marriage with someone, 
who has a strong sexual addiction that they are repeatedly struggling in, that they're not easily, quickly confessing, that they're not striving wholeheartedly to overcome, willing to do whatever they need to do absolutely without any part of their own self, like, preservation, then don't marry them. Like, just don't marry them. Um, Because I've seen so many women who have been just, uh, the pain that you will go through um, for the next many years, if you can even manage to stay married, is beyond what I, I think any woman should have to submit to. Like, don't don't even ask yourself to do that. Like, it's just, I, it is what many, and I'll speak on what Daniel said earlier, that many men will use the excuse that it's an addiction, and though it is, they will use that to say, you know, it has a strong grip on me, and we have walked with dear friends through this who are married, who have children. And I can tell you the amplification of what it does within that, that um, marriage and that family, it's, it's horrible. Um, but I have seen men who have tried to argue that they, you know, because they're tempted when they're sent out of town on business because of their job and they're having to work with people of the opposite sex and well quit your job like there are so many times where men are just they they're just they're not stepping up to the plate and not willing to do the hard work and it might mean removing screens it might mean doing all of those things um and you can walk beside them if you are already married with them and you can walk beside them and support and when they are striving to do it, to make the amends to, to fight for your marriage and to fight for their own sanctification. But it's not on you. It's not, you can't carry the burden of them still choosing sin. It's, it, you know, we have friends who have dealt with infidelity and they've overcome it. And, and I have quite a few actually who have, um, who have overcome it and seen God's redemptive glory work out in marriage. And it's beautiful. And there's nothing that shines his, his light so brightly, but it was hell. I can just tell you that there was nothing that I would ever wish for anyone to have to go through that. And when you have children in the picture, it's even worse. So if you can avoid getting married and stepping into that in the first place, then I just say do that. Yes and amen. <clears throat> if you are in that marriage, let me just give you some very practical things. Um, number one, it should always be an, an area of prayer, ladies, for you over your husband with sexual temptation because it will always be there. The world will always throw it at him. Satan will always throw him. So it should be a constant area of, of prayer for you. So it is something you can do proactively and also reactively if, if necessary. Um, if you ever catch your husband uh, lusting after women on social media, watching porn, you need to call him out immediately. Um, the moment it happens a second time, you need to go to the men in his life 
And again, this is all Matthew 18, right? You need to go and you need to, they need to come and confront him and call him out on it. If it happens again, you come to the church leaders um, and, and let us try to assist in that, in that process. This, these are the things you should naturally do um, uh, along the way. And, and again, and I would just add to that, if it becomes serious at that point, it's a, it's a matter of fasting and prayer. I mean, it is, a, it is a spiritual stronghold that can take hold of someone, and you have to fight it with the right weapons. And you have to surround uh, people, um, surround him in that way. But again, it, this is just one of those things. One of the things you're going to have to learn in life is that there's a difference between um, sorrow and sorrow that leads to repentance, right? And most people are just sorry because they got caught. But, but godly sorrow leads to repentance. And, and, you, and this is one of those predating things, right? If you see someone, just because they're sorrowful doesn't mean it's godly sorrow. Like you need to see if they can actually display godly sorrow and they actually repent after they've been caught. That's a person you can marry. Someone who doesn't actually repent, uh, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't marry. All right, I'll... That's the last question. So this last question is this. Is having kids an important or even a, this is my words, necessary part of marriage? Is having kids an important or necessary part of marriage? Do you have to have kids if you're married? What is the very first thing that God tells Adam and Eve? Be fruitful and multiply. Right? It's the very first thing he tells the married couple to do. Does this mean you absolutely necessarily have to have children? I'm not going to say that, but I'm going to point you to what God said is the very first command to the married couple. Right? Because we know there are reasons by which people do not have children. The assumption that I would challenge in this question, and it goes back to what Kevin said about Tim Keller, is that most people enter into marriage for themselves and their own fun and their own joy and their own excitement. Um, and when you do that, you get married for selfish reasons. You're getting married for you. Um, the question a while ago about how you see holiness through your marriage, Kevin, I don't, I don't know about this for you. Like the holiness part of marriage didn't happen for me very much before we had kids in a sense. I mean, yeah, like I like my wife. I love my wife. But it was a honeymoon phase, right? Because we had, I um, mean, Josiah was born two and a half years into our marriage. Yeah, like that was awesome, right? Me and her together alone all the time, doing whatever we wanted to, naked most of the time. It was fabulous. Guess what? You bring a baby into a marriage, it's different. I thought she liked me. She really liked that thing, right? I mean, that thing never left. He was there all the time. I mean, it's like, it, it's like, it's earth shattering. I mean, it is paradigm shattering. And it's like, like now the rubber meets the road because now I have to love her and we're not in the same kind of pattern in relationship that, 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 that we were before. 
Um, somehow we still managed to have three more children as well. But, but it's just one of the things, like, like that's where I grew in holiness. I will just tell you this. There is nothing that is going to reveal your godliness and your character more than having children. Because they will demand your time, energy, and attention the way nothing else will. They will try you. I mean, it is amazing what the impact those little guys can have on your, on your life. And so, I mean, to specifically answer the question, is having kids an important part of marriage? Absolutely. Because it fulfills God's first command to the husband and wife. And there is nothing else that will sanctify you and make you more like Jesus if you allow God to do it than through your children. Thank you. But just to add one thing to that too, there's also nothing that will help you understand God's love for you, um, His generosity, His slowness to anger, His... Um, good gifts, like all of the other beautiful attributes of God that you can only slightly fathom until you have children and can really see through the lens of a, a mother or father. That absolutely will be another paradigm shift in which you grow into such a greater understanding and, and appreciation for the relationship that God has called us to with him as he's adopted us as, as his own children. Jackie handed this to me, so I guess I have to say something. Um, <laughs> um, I don't even think I would agree with Daniel in the sense that I don't view um, the mandate there as a command. I view it as a blessing. But why would you want to turn away a blessing from the Lord? You know, different different pastors like interpret or different biblical scholars um, approach the the language there in Genesis one and Genesis two differently. And I'm familiar with the argument that that is a command. I, I also am of the opinion that it is God blessing Adam and Eve, you know, saying to them, "Hey, you will be fruitful, you will multiply uh, on the earth." Uh, I don't think it changes though my opinion on of how we respond to what God says there. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's an important part of marriage. It's not necessary. It, you know, there, there, as Daniel said, there's all sorts of reasons why kids may not be a part of your, your family or your relationship. Um, but I, just again, going back to meaning of marriage, even um, like a hundred years ago, like people weren't even asking this question just weren't like, like you guys just need to understand that like you, you live in a finite moment of time. And so the questions you're asking are drastically different simply because of like medical advancements. Like, and so does that make you better than the previous, you know, thousand generations that lived before you that you get to think through that and have that choice and that autom automatically having kids is a personal decision for whether it fulfills you or not. Because I would say most of the time, ki having kids is not an important part of your marriage if you're going to have kids because you think it's going to bring some sort of value or fulfillment to your life. Your kids are not there 
to deal with your issues. And some of you guys in this room have issues because your parents did that with you, including me. And so you need to understand that having kids is an opportunity to raise children up in the way that they would go. And as we learned this morning in the sermon, to glorify God and point them towards their creator that they might know and love him and worship him in the way that they were designed to do so. Um, So, yes, having kids, I think, is important, but not important in the way that we often bring our cultural context in. Again, everything I think at this point in time is I'm just learning and kind of from a sociological perspective, observing the world around me, all of us have been conditioned to think that Maslow's hierarchy of needs is correct and that we're the center of the universe. And we're just not. God is. And we seek to obey him and honor him because it goes well with us when we do so and because he's worthy of us doing so. That's good. So as we kind of wrap up, this podcast. I want to give you guys an opportunity if there's any other thoughts that you want to throw out there, any concluding ideas or things you want to clarify as we just wrap everything up right now. I was going to say one thing to tag on that last question. Um, I think like, so let's say if having biological children is not in the picture for you or even, even adoptive children, um, we still can have like spiritual children, right? And so if, if that is not in the cards for whatever the reason is, right, I would still um, just challenge you to, to recognize like hopefully it's not for a self-fulfilled reason and instead um, seeing like where can I still produce, you know, disciples or, or raise people up, right, even if they aren't from like day one to, you know, forever, right, or until you die. So um, we can still have, there are plenty of people in my life that I would call like, you know, almost like a spiritual mother, right? Because they poured life into me and, and helped kind of um, help me in my walk and grow me. So, yeah. Let me just say one, one last thing as we kind of wrap everything up um, before I hand it over to Fetterman to conclude the podcast. I just want to say that the word is so clear to us in that God Jesus tells us that he has not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so we realize that we're talking to people, and we're talking to people who have failed in these areas, people who have made many mistakes, people who are trying to figure these things out and trying to obey the Lord as best that we can. Um, And so we want you to know that the gospel is available to all people, that Jesus has come to call us to repentance and to call us to salvation. So we want to encourage you guys to just trust in Jesus, to genuinely repent, as Kevin said, to genuinely believe in who he is because he offers grace and mercy um, if you come before his throne in humility and in genuineness. God offers that. So so hopefully you guys don't come away with this sense of like, we've made things very black and white because the Bible's very black and white. Um, Jesus offers all of us the opportunity to turn to himself and to trust and believe in him. So that's our prayer is that you've heard Jesus being mentioned many times in this conversation and that you all genuinely know, believe, trust, and love him, knowing that God loves us so much that he wants the best for our lives in this area and in the many other areas that we'll discuss over the next couple months. Thank you guys for being here. I want to hand it over to Fetterman. Thank you, Theo, for that word. Um, So obviously, you know, this is a very big topic and there's a lot to talk about. And this doesn't necessarily have to be the end of the conversation for you. If you have 
more questions or want to process through some of this, feel free to reach out to us and we will gladly have those conversations. Uh, the easiest way is just email podcast at com, and we'll gladly continue that conversation uh, with further questions or whatever uh, you guys need. Um, We'll have a link to the book in the description, Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller, really great resource. Uh, and if you have more questions about different topics, like Daniel was talking about fasting and prayer, uh, the podcast is our means to do uh, just intentional uh, discipleship and learning with you guys to process and know some of these things and get perspective on that. So feel free, like, uh, you can find the podcast. If you ask any of us, we will point you in the direction of where it is. And there's great resources there that we have done and taken time to provide for you guys uh, online, which is on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, whatever. I don't have an Apple phone, so I don't know. Um, but yeah, so uh, thank you all for... <laughs> Thank you, Kevin. Uh, thank you all for coming. I know it's been a long uh, afternoon, but we really appreciate it. And with that, guys, go and be the church. Yeah, and the, where, I, where I lived in Washington, the skydiving place was about five miles from our house, but it was about half a mile from my church. And so all day long, you just saw people. I won't tell you how many died, but... Um, it was also the big hot air balloon field. It was it, that, that was an interesting story. One time we were at church and the winds were blowing the wrong way, and uh, they they made an attempt to land in uh, the, the lawn of our church. Uh, but right as they got about twenty five feet from the ground, the winds changed again favorably, and they went back up and then landed back where they were supposed to. But that was an interesting day.